When you mention sin today, many people will look a bit blank at you. Because in this postmodern time, anything goes and whatever you want to do or believe is fine. There are no absolute standards. You have only to be true to yourself. And the only constraint that is sometimes left is that you should not hurt others. But nobody, not even a god, can impose his standards or views on another. All views are to be respected and are of equal value, as long as they are politically correct, of course, and reflect British values or French values or Dutch values or whatever the local opinion makers decide is the right thing. And then if you mention repentance of sin, their looks probably become even glassier. Because people are, of course, sorry for themselves, sometimes for others. But sin as a deviation from law, the law of a God we are responsible to for what we do with and in our lives, sin as the cause of the misery in this world, sin as something to confess to God and repent of, that today is for many a rather absurd idea. And also in the church, repentance doesn't appear particularly popular. As we noted last week in the Roman Catholic Church, which officially still has penitence as a sacrament, many of the confessionals serve as broom cupboards. And you may well wonder whether it is much better in the Protestant churches. Admittedly not a scientific survey, but I told through the first three pages on Google after typing in 500-year Reformation. As you probably know, the Protestant Church has started with the Reformation, which by convention has its beginning on October 31 in 1517, now nearly 500 years ago, when Luther nailed his thesis at the door of a church in Wittenberg, as the law has it. Well, the 500-year Reformation search resulted in a jaw-dropping array of seminars and conferences and concerts and interfaith meetings and events with popes and archbishops, in travel and tour proposals, in Amazon and eBay book offers, and even in a little Playmobil looter. But from what I could see, not a single text on any site mentioned the fact that Luther's famous 95 Theses, the first one is actually about repentance. Luther's first Theses, at the very start of the celebrated Reformation, is a strong affirmation of the need for repentance. It says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says, Ponitentiam agite, which means repent ye, he means that the entire life of the faithful should be a repentance. 
But among the oodles of speeches and workshops I saw announced, not a single one was about repentance. Now, in response, we should, of course, make sure that the pendulum of the clock doesn't swing too far in the other direction, although maybe that is less of a risk today. There is the famous or maybe infamous story about the minister who was preaching about sin. The story may not be true. I've never met anybody who could pin down the person or the place at the time, but since it makes for such a nice caricature of Christianity, it probably survived. And the story is that this minister came after preaching his sermon, rubbing his hands into the vestry, gloating and saying, We did well this morning in the sermon. Through the gray dust I had them crawl in their black suits. And so there are many stories about ministers who could be thundering away at their congregation for the better part of an hour about sin, hell, doom, and damnation, and not much else. And that most certainly is not a biblical approach. But if we look at reality today, and we then, in addition to sin and repentance, start to talk about the joy of repentance and the blessing of forgiveness and the positive impact it has on your life, then people probably start wondering how they can get away from you and whether you are not a bit balmy. Because for most people, if you feel bad about something, then you go and drown the bad feelings in drink or in the noise of a club, or you treat yourself to a holiday or to a shopping expedition. Or you go and lie on the couch of your shrink and you let it all come out. Or maybe if you are a somewhat more reserved Brit, you remain seated in your chair and you talk to your counselor. Now, to prevent misunderstanding, I'm not suggesting that counseling does not have its place. And the view that physical and mental illness is the result of personal sin is an unbiblical thought, as we know from the stories of Job and Paul. And the idea that either physical or mental illness will go away if only you believe is equally unfounded. The fall in paradise has made this reality a broken reality, and that will never go away, and illnesses of all sorts will be always part of a Christian's life. But we hear in this psalm about the joy of repentance, and if you hear about the joy of repentance, also a Christian may look a bit surprised. Because isn't repentance a serious, a solemn, and a somber affair? Well, serious, yes. Sin and its consequences are very serious. You only have to look around you at the misery in this world to know this. And it is also a solemn affair. The terrible death of our Lord Jesus was because of sin, and it is an awful and awesome event. But repentance is not a somber affair, because it is a cause for rejoicing. That is what our psalmist David says. Now, you may have noticed 
that in our New Testament reading about Peter's sermon, the first declaration of the gospel by the New Testament church, people are cut to the heart and they ask him, what are we to do? And his answer is, repent. And then that answer is shortly thereafter followed by a reference to the Lord's Supper in verse 42. And, of course, a meditation on repentance of sin, which each of us then has to personally undertake, is traditionally part of the preparation for the Lord's Supper. And so it seems sensible to follow that approach when, try, when we are trying to give hand and feet, as it were, to the practical application of this psalm in our life. And you can find this reflection, this meditation, for the Lord's Supper in many forms. In the liturgies of some of the Reformed churches, it comes in the form of three exhortations. The first one is, let everyone consider his sin and accursedness so that he or she detests himself or herself and may humble him or herself before God. For the wrath of God against sin is so great that he could not leave it unpunished, but has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, by the bitter and shameful death on the cross. So here is the conviction of sin, and that's a conviction that doesn't drop from the sky, but that we have to develop in daily, in daily devotion by comparing our behavior to the standards required. But there it doesn't stop. Secondly, there is, let everyone search his heart, whether he also believes the sure promise, whether he believes the sure promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is freely given him as his own, as if he himself had fulfilled all this. Righteousness. So there we have the assuredness of the forgiveness of sin. Now the promise to you, and whether you are a confessing member of a church or not, doesn't matter. The promise is sure. Matthew tells us that the Lord Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The question is, what is your response? Are you saying you are a loving and truthful God and I believe in you or not? And then the third part of the meditation is let everyone examine his conscience, whether it is his sincere desire to show true thankfulness to God with his entire life. And then practically laying aside all enmity, hatred and envy and to live with his neighbor in true love and unity. That is the question in the true repentance and the renewal of your life and the living in thankfulness. It is not inquiring into how holy and devout you are compared to your mother or the elders or how much progress you have made with sanctification because measuring self-righteousness is a truly depressing exercise. But it is about your desire, your willingness to change wrong behavior willing, albeit failing. Now, repentance is in the New Testament and the Old Testament literally turning, turning 180 degrees. It's a change in behavior. 
not always successful, but in intent, to turn away from sin towards God. And this process, if you want to label it clinically, or this experience, if you want to see it more emotionally, this living through of confessing our sins and desiring to change our behavior is a serious thing, a solemn thing, but it is also a joyful thing. And that is the message of Psalm 32. We looked last week at Psalm 51. There is hope in confession. And like Psalm 32, it is one of the penitential psalms. And in a way, in Psalm 52, David poetically describes his act of confessing, of petitioning for forgiving, forgiveness and renewal, and then the following call to praise. Here in Psalm 32, he looks back, as it were, on what had happened, and he describes how he experienced this event and what conclusion he draws from that experience. Psalm 32 is, in a way, looking back upon and is a reflection upon Psalm 51. And I would like to summarize the message from Psalm 32 for you this morning as follows. There is joy in repentance. And we know two things. The psalmist's personal testimony. When I confessed, I revived. And then the psalmist's universal teaching. You repent and you will rejoice. So there is joy in repentance. And we know two things. The psalmist's personal testimony. When I confessed, I revived. And then also his universal teaching, you repent and you will rejoice. Now, if we look at the psalm, the structure of it is relatively simple. There are, it's not always coming out very clearly in the way it's printed, but there are four parts to it and an overall conclusion in verse 11. The first part, the verses 1 and 2, and then the last two verses, 9 and 10, are similar to the wisdom teaching that you can find in Proverbs or in Job or in Ecclesiastes. It is wisdom teaching to all mankind based on his personal experience in the verses 3 to 5, and then in the, on the conclusions that he draws for all in the verses 6 to 8. In the verses 1, to, 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose, spirit, in whose spirit there is no deceit. He gives us the truth that he discovered up front, right at the outset. He also makes clear that he is talking to sinners. The blessedness he is referring to is not for perfect people, for the very holy ones, for examples of pious and devout living but for those who transgress, sin, and commit iniquities. The transgressions, the sin, and the iniquities were not absent, but it is, says our text, lifted, covered, and not counted. Because the psalmist, the psalmist sees humans himself, including himself, the great David, as sinners. And their happiness and their blessedness does not rest on their perfection, but on the forgiveness of sins. You see, happiness 
Happiness is so important to people that it became part of the U.S. Constitution, but the pursuit of it is for many in vain. But what our text says is blessedness, happiness in the present. Blessed is. You see, Christianity has been accused of focusing the attention on the hereafter, not being concerned about putting things right now. It's the gospel of jam tomorrow. But the psalmist here says is. Blessed is he. Now, who is blessed? The one whose transgressions, sins, and equities are forgiven. The words here are poetic parallels. Transgression is crossing a boundary, acting against a rule or a law. And sin is missing the mark, falling short of the expected standard of behavior. And iniquity is criminality, an attitude of disrespect for what is right. And together they indicate the completeness, the whole range of wrongdoing. We saw the same triad in Psalm 51. And then the wisdom teacher tells us what forgiven is. It's not ignoring or forgetting or denying, but it is a deliberate action by God. The burden of transgression which presses us down is lifted from us, and the ugliness of sin is covered as the saints are dressed in new, clean, white clothes. And the iniquity is by him no longer held against us. And that is because the Lord Jesus, through his death, which, of course, we remember at the Lord's Supper. And then the first section here concludes with, Blessed is the man in whom there is no deceit. Well, you may say, what does that mean? Does this require yet perfection of some sort? Because there is a bit of deceit in us all. But then I think you have to understand this phrase in context. And in the context, the poet is moving to the next section about his own confession of sin in the next two verses. And without deceit, I think, means that the confession needs to be genuine and complete. It cannot be hypocritical or just formulaic. There is no problem with fixed formulas in our prayers, not in church and not at home. In in fact, tradition and familiar sentences may be helpful. But only as long as they are really meant and heartfelt. And so the psalm starts with a general wisdom teaching, Blessed is he whose transgressions, sins, and iniquities are forgiven. So here you have the good news up front. But... How does he know? Well, in the next verses he explains, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity, and I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He knows from personal experience. David's experience, we elaborated on that last week. We'll not do it again. But here he says, well, at first I did not confess my sins. The psalmist doesn't tell us whether there was no conviction of sin, that he did not maybe compare his behavior to the standards laid down in God's word, or whether he tried to deny it or ignore it or push it from his mind 
or whether he knew he was wrong, but he could not bring himself to confess it before the Lord. He resisted confession and repentance, persisted in his sin because he did not want to give it up. I kept silent. That is what he says here. He did not confess and not repent. Now, you may have noticed that we use confess and repent interchangeably. They are similar, not exactly the same concepts, of course, but they always go together. And our psalmist does not contemplate a situation whereby we would confess but not repent. That would, of course, be a travesty. Saying to God, I've sinned, but I'm not sorry, I'm not going to give it up. And the psalmist did not consider that, nor should we. So whatever the reason was of his silence, the result we read in these verses was very bad. He came under intense internal pressure. Bones, literally the bones, of course, but also the substance of self, that what gives strength, keeps you standing and upright, they were crushed. And it was as if they were growing old. Life was difficult. It was heavy going. It made him wary and bent down. And the groaning referred to in our text is not sort of a kind of a whimpering, but it's roaring. It's what the lions do. It was intense pressure. And the pressure was always there, relentlessly, all day long. His vitality and his energy disappeared. Literally, it says his juice turned or changed like in the summer's trout. He was creaking and squeaking to a hold. And in it, he recognizes the Lord's hand. He says, your hand was upon me. The sovereign God who rules the world, whether we acknowledge it or not, caused and authorized his pain. Not fate, not humans. They may be instruments, but they were not the ultimate causes. Now, whether our text refers to actual physical or mental ailment or an event or an experience, we don't know. There's no point, I think, in speculating. He doesn't say, so it's none of our business. But what he does tell us is that he then confessed his sin. He causes them to be known. No more silence. No more attempts to ignore. No more acting as nothing is wrong. No more spiritual whistling in the wind. Not that he is telling God anything new that he didn't know, or that we are telling God something that is news to him, but because God wants our confession as an acknowledgement of our guilt. Confess my transgressions against myself is literally what verse 5 says, meaning the acknowledging it's really our sin can't put the blame somewhere else, which is what we often do. On the circumstances, that was Eve's defense in paradise. Or on other people, that was Adam's defense in paradise. Trying to escape responsibility. But what God asks is confession because that makes it more difficult to continue with sin. And in fact, here the psalmist repeats all three categories, transgression, sin, and iniquity. And as before, distresses, I think, the completeness. He confesses all his sins. There is no slackness, no deceit. 
What is meant is the completeness in the sense that you can't keep a little corner of your life to yourself. You can't think in your confession, this will I confess, but not that. I know in my heart or I read in my Bible that it's wrong, but I don't want to give it up. And I remain silent about that. Because whatever it is, internet sites, not speaking or loving somebody, not reading your Bible, staying silent about part of your sin would be the deceit of verse 2. You cannot keep a corner of your life to yourself, saying in essence, I know it's wrong, but I want to persist and not give it up. Now, we may, of course, fail. Like sinners, we always will. But the desire, as the third meditation, the third question in the meditation was saying, the desire, the intention to turn away from sin and towards the Lord needs to be there. And then there follows the high point of the psalm. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Just one sentence. But the center of the psalm is around it all, which it all turns. No big explanations required. There is absolute certainty. There is a total matter of factness. I confessed, you forgave. Now, when we are celebrating the Lord's Supper, we do remember at what a terrible cost that was secured. But secured, it was. And that certainty existed in the Old Testament. And we read it here in verse 5, and we read it in the New Testament in John's letter, where it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promise of forgiveness is God's promise, and therefore it's a sure promise. That is why the psalmist and we can, without any hesitation, move from confession and repentance on the one hand to forgiveness on the other. Repentance and forgiveness are different things, of course, but unless you want to go ahead and tell God that you heard his sure promise, but you can't or you won't believe it, They always go together. And then we read in the psalm, the pressure is relieved and the burden of sin is lifted, verse 7, where it says, You are a hiding place for me, you preserve me from trouble, you surround me with shouts of deliverance. We hear him sing about God who gives him shelter, who protects him and gives him victory. Shouts of this in the Old Testament are often associated with cries of victory when Israel had been delivered from its enemies by the Lord. And then later there are the waves and the breakers that sweep over the psalmist, that swept over the psalmist in Psalm 43, for example, they now no longer can reach him. Verse 6. No longer a heavy hand, but a protecting hand. So then we heard... There is joy in repentance, and we noticed in the first place the psalmist's personal testimony. When I confessed, I revived. We will then in the second place hear his universal teaching or his exhortation or his encouragement. You repent, and you will rejoice. You see, his confidence was based on the certainty of God's promise. You confess, I forgive. And it is on that basis that the psalmist draws his conclusion that he bases his universal teaching. Because this did not just apply to him in his particular situation. 
He, but through him God, tells us a word that it applies to us as well. And he tells us in verse 6a, let every godly one pray and the floodwaters will not reach him. In the verses 6 to 8, he is sometimes addressing his audience, sometimes indirectly addressing them through speaking to God. And we read in these verses, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you may be found. And surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will not call you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. There he is introducing the Lord, speaking to him and indirectly to his audience. Now he is summoning here the godly to prayer. And in the context more specifically to the prayer of confession of sin. Because the word used for prayer here, there are about a dozen in the Old Testament, is thought to derive from a stem meaning to invoke God as judge, to be contrite. And then it says, every one who is godly. Now the word used here does not mean some very holy or saintly or extremely devout person. The word in fact comes from the same stem that is used in the noun in verse 10, where it talks about steadfast love. It is God's covenant love, his faithfulness, and his love that will never let us go. For the word godly means everyone who loves God and is loved by God in that ever-reliable relation that we have with him in his covenant. And they are, says our text, to pray at the time that you are to be found. Now these are possibly a bit puzzling words. Is there then a time that God is not to be found? Is there a window of opportunity? Maybe the day is ahead of the Lord's Supper. And if we miss it, is it panic stations? Or does God keep surgery hours or have set audiences? Well, of course, that's not the teaching of the Bible. I will never leave you and never forsake you. That is what he promised Joshua and us. And it says elsewhere, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. So we should not read that in this phrase. The psalmist has in the poetry of the psalm now moved to an address to God. His message comes to us in the form of his prayer and his address to God. And I think the sentence is best understood as the language of respect. If you please, when it is convenient, at your time, when you may be found. But we know that God always wants to be found, day and night. And that is why God wants us to pray, to make that same confession as the psalmist, and we will then enjoy the same benefits as he, which he recites in verse 7 that we already looked at. There are no, there's no more pressure, there are no floodwaters but shelter. No more grief for like, the, for the wicked like David experienced in verse 3 is, and, and it is mentioned again in verse 10. No longer surrounded by the enemies or the bulls of Bashan as David found himself in Psalm 22, but surrounded by victory, by God's loving kindness, verse 10b. And then in this verse 8, he no longer speaks to the Lord, but he introduces the Lord speaking to us, to him and us. 
And what we can learn is how this change in life, this consequence of repentance, will come about. It will come about through two actions of the Lord, his teaching and his watching over us. He will teach us in the way we must walk. As we saw it earlier, the confession is followed by or combined with repentance. The regret by change of behavior. From walking in the world in sin, we must turn around and walk his way. And this teaching about the way to walk is given to us in God's word. Now, we will not be perfect. We will never be perfect. But the Spirit, says our text, will guide us. It also said that in the, New, in the New Testament and will help us in our sanctification, in our desire and willingness to do his will. We're not just given a piece of text of law and then told to learn it by heart, but we will be given understanding, referred to in verse 9. And the other thing we are promised is God watching over us. In some translation, that last sentence reads a bit like, you know, God will give us commands or signals with his eyes. But that, I think, is difficult to understand. More likely that this verse should be read as two clauses. I will counsel you, which is similar to the previous line, but stressing and adding that his instruction will really be of help and a guide in our life. And then the second one, my eye is upon you. Like a mother keeps an eye on her children to keep them out of trouble. And then in the verses 9 and 10, the wisdom teaching resumes. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. We are not to ignore his counsel and resist his advice. And how often is that not the case, that we cannot bring ourselves to confess our sins to God? But the psalmist compares that behavior with a mindless, stubborn mule that always wants to go in the wrong direction in a hurry and a gallop. And it needs to be turned around with the steering force of bridle and halter. Galloping in the wrong direction brings grief to the wicked, as the psalmist had experienced Confessing our sins and repentance, turning around, is only possible, of course, if you trust the Lord. Trust in the promise of his forgiveness, but that promise is sure. But if you, Because if you don't trust, it would be self-incrimination. But if you do not deny his trustworthiness, but believe the promise of his forgiveness, then, like David, when you repent, you will be surrounded by the love that will never let you go. Verse 10b, or in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So briefly then and in closing, we heard that there is joy in repentance and we noticed two things, the psalmist's personal testimony, I confessed and I revived. And then the psalmist universal teaching, you repent and you will rejoice. He was certain of forgiveness upon the confession of his sin. I confess, you forgive.
Why? Because he was holy, saintly, devout, righteous in himself. Well, certainly not. He knows himself and he presumes all others to be sinners. And based on his own experience, he has a serious warning for those who stay silent and do not confess. Why do people, we others, not confess? Well, maybe we find ourselves on a pedestal. A pedestal that we put ourselves on, believing that we are basically a decent person, not too bad at all. Or maybe a pedestal where others put us, looking up to such a devout person or a saintly church leader. And then we can't disappoint ourselves or others and come down. But our text contains an urgent warning and an urgent call, don't go there. Don't stay on your pedestal, it is a dangerous place. We read it in the beginning of the psalm. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. The poet gives us there a penetrating picture of his mental anguish and torment and total lack of joy. And he also warns us not to keep anything back, not to keep a little corner of our lives for ourselves, because that for him is deceit and slackness. But forgiveness upon confession is God's promise, and that promise is certain. And trust in God when confessing our sins is based on his covenant faithfulness and that love that will never let you go. And then it says, and in that love he will give us guidance and protection. So the repentance of sin is a serious affair. We cannot do so lightly or trying to cut corners. And it is a solemn affair because the sin requires the Lord's death, which we do remember at the Lord's Supper. But you see, it is not a somber affair because the conclusion is there in verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you all upright in heart, because there is joy in repentance. Amen. Let us pray.